0: So we are continuing our thought on that step of observation. We've talked about how um, in this inductive Bible study, we're going to start with observation. We talked about there's going to be five steps to that observation step, and then we're going to get into interpretation and application. So this is the second aspect of observation, and the chapter title is Listening Actively to the Text. And so it's all about asking the right questions when we come to the text, asking good questions Um, so that we can observe what God's trying to say, we can ask the questions that lead the way to interpretation and application, we'll get into a little bit today. So uh, I believe the first slide I have there is that quote from Thean Stewart, the key to good exegesis, and therefore to a more intelligent reading of the Bible, is to learn to read the text carefully and to ask the right questions of the text. Um, Someone remind me, what is Exegesis talked about it a few times. What is exegesis? Paul? Right, we're pulling the meaning out of the text as opposed to eisegesis reading into the text, or as I've heard some people say, narsegesis, where you're reading yourself into the text. So, exegesis, we're trying to let this text speak for itself, and so part of that is asking good questions. Asking the right questions. I put another quote from the book, uh, not on the screen, but in the notes. This should come as no surprise. After all, an inquisitive mind provides the fuel for inductive study. As there, there's a certain inductive virtue in approaching the Bible with holy curiosity. Curiosity drives us to the Bible and keeps us returning to the Bible again and again throughout our lives. Without a curiosity to know the truth with increasing depth and a fresh perspective, the motivation to study God's word would quickly evaporate, and Bible study would become a lifeless burden without expectation and joy. So it's important as we come to Scripture, we have this, as he says there, holy curiosity. We're asking questions of the text. We're asking um, why things are said this way or why, you know, why, what, who, you know, we're going to talk about some of those different types of questions, but that curiosity fuels us to dive into the word and try to understand what the word is teaching. So as we come to uh, as we come with curiosity to the text and ask questions, we inevitably will move from questions of observation to questions of interpretation and application. And we're going to talk about you know a lot of these questions we're asking. In some ways, are going to jump the gun to that step of interpretation and application. But even in that observation period, we're posing the questions. That paved the way to interpretation and application. So, so we don't want to progress too quickly through the steps. So there's four categories of questions that we're going to look at. And so you'll notice the notes I gave you, uh, I think I had four pages front and back. Don't be overwhelmed. We're not going to work through all of that today. But I wanted to give you a sample at the end. We'll get, we might be able to touch on one of the passages but they did very thorough work at looking at a passage and verse by verse, here's a bunch of questions. So I, I thought it was good to give you that as a tool to read through. And, and I mean, when you look at those texts, I don't know that we w- any of us would have come up with that many questions. So it's good to see different questions from different perspectives. So we're going to work through a little bit of this and maybe look at one of those examples, but don't be overwhelmed. But we're going to look at four um, categories of questions and these categories will help us not to Jump straight to application or jump to interpretation. So they're going to help us really focus on questions of the observation first and then posing questions of in, in interpretation and then application. So the first one is questions of content. Questions of content. These questions seek to understand the substance of the text and the significance of its context. Okay? Uh, in the book, they say, questions of content draw upon the most basic aspects of observation, even if the answers to these questions aren't always simple. In this sense, they tend to involve defining what one sees in the text before striving to understand the significance of that content. Okay? So go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 29, because we're going to look at some examples. We're, as we work through these different um, categories of question. We're going to look at Jeremiah twenty nine eleven and the surrounding context, and that'll give us a feel for how to look at a passage like this and ask certain questions. Okay. All right. So I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is one of the most quoted out of context verses. And so I think that's why they use this as an example, because when we come to it, we need to ask questions of, the, of this verse and of the surrounding text. So let me just read 29.11, and then as we look at some of these questions, we might look a little broader, look a little bit outside of that verse. So verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Okay? So we mentioned this is a verse that a lot of people use, graduation, you know, you, you've got a future and a hope, God's promised it, okay? So here's some questions of content as we come to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that we have to ask. So first of all, uh, and I don't, do I have these in the notes? I think I put these questions in the notes. Yes, so first question is, what is the historical context of this de- declaration? And we're not going to seek to answer all of these today. This is more just to give you an idea of These are questions to look at to the text that drive us to further study. Joseph? Okay, yeah. And some of these we might try to touch on just like that. So, yeah, that's important. What is the context? What's the historical context of this declaration? When did Jeremiah receive it or write it? And when was it delivered to the original recipient? So this would drive us to then looking for the answers by studying the history. Who were the original recipients of this declaration? So you mentioned Israel. Was it Nebuchadnezzar or the captives living in Babylon? So it seems like it's given more to uh, to the Israelites that are in captivity. But these are questions asked. What circumstances were the recipients experiencing at the time? And from their perspective, what kind of hope and future would they have expected as an alternative to disaster? Okay. So we look at that and, and that... Uh, and then the last one, what literary genre is this declaration set within? Is it a salvation oracle or a letter? So these are questions to consider as we're coming to this passage so that we're not just, you know, again, scripture's not just a collection of a bunch of really nice sayings to stamp on a shirt or a coffee mug, right? There's context that we want to, and there's content that we're trying to ask questions of, Okay. So when we understand the circumstances of this is Israel in captivity in Babylon, the future and hope that is promised is that God has promised Abraham that he's going to give them land, seed, and blessing. And this is a promise that even though you're in captivity right now, I'm going to fulfill my promises. This isn't going to be the end all of your your nation. And so um, we're going to get into some different questions there. But any thoughts on questions of content? Kylie? Declaration? Yeah, it's, it's a declaration, it's something that God's declaring, right? Here, Thus declares the Lord. So, these are words straight from God, but then we have to ask the question, Who, who's it written to? Is this a direct, and we're going to get into the application aspect of it here in a minute, but we're looking at the content, we're trying to understand, as we talked about, the historical, cultural context, all these different aspects, what kind of literature it is. So, this all gets back to a lot of the principles we touched on um, in, in questions we need to ask and consider, Okay. The second category of questions are questions of relationship, okay? These questions probe the relationship of words, phrases, and concepts within and between literary units, okay? The book says questions of relationship are those that drive you to consider the context of what you're studying. As such, a question of relationship may pertain to a relatively narrow relationship within a passage of Scripture, such as how two words relate to one another in a passage, or a broader relationship, such as how a concept in a particular passage relates to the passage that precedes and follows. So when we're talking about relationship and context, it could be as much as, okay, this sentence, there's two words used. What's the relationship between those two words being used? Or it could be a broader context of what does that chapter say? What does the book say? And really... We can even look at the context of all of Scripture. What is that teaching in light of all of Scripture and the narrative of redemption throughout Scripture? So some example questions for Jeremiah 29, 11, questions of relationship would be these. The de- declaration in verse 11 is clearly part of a broader declaration that begins in verse 10. Okay. However, where does the complete prophetic letter begin and where does it end? So we've got to look in... Where does, where do God's words start? Where's, what's the context of this uh, declaration? Verse 10, so look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Okay? So in light of verse 10, verse 10 states that these blessings will be realized after 70 years are completed. When did these 70 years begin and when did they end? So, these are questions to ask when we come to that. Okay, what's 70 years? Was that from the time of this writing? Was it the time of uh, when they started captivity? What are these questions that we're trying to dive into? Um, are the details of what a future and hope uh, entail specified specifically in the verses that precede or follow? Uh, are there other portions of Jeremiah that speak of 70 years as the duration of captivity? So now we're going to look at is there other places in Jeremiah where 70 years is mentioned? And does that give us answers to the questions of what this may be referring to? Um, let's see. Is there a prophetic basis within Jeremiah that provides the reason why the recipients of this letter should be promised a future and hope, while others are not promised such a blessing? So, and then here they note the contrast of verses 10-14, uh, 29-15-20. So let's read a little bit bigger context. And again... This sheds light onto this one verse. So we read 10 and 11. Let's pick up in verse 12 after that promise of a future and hope. Uh, It says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So this seems very specifically... A very specific promise to Israel, right? As we read the context, we're already seeing this isn't just some blanket statement for every person in all of history, right? But look at verse fifteen and following as well. And and I've, I'm tempted when I read these verses to, if someone quotes Jeremiah twenty nine eleven as a di- direct uh, promise to them, I want to say, well, why are verses fifteen and twenty not a direct promise to you, okay? Because look at what these verses say, verse 15. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword famine and pestilence, and I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So we were quick to want to say God's got a future and a hope. We're not quick to say God's got sword famine and pestilence for us, right? Um, because, again, I think that's eisegesis. We're trying to read in, oh, this promises directly to me. So when we see the context there, um, as they said, is there a prophetic basis within Jeremiah that provides the reason why the recipients of this letter should be promised a future and hope, while others are not promised such a blessing? Okay? How does the contrast function in relation to promise of cursing such as those found in Jeremiah 44:27. So keep a finger there and we'll just read that verse, Jeremiah 44:27. It's very similar to what we looked at in verses 15 to 20 of Jeremiah 29. But 44:27 says Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. So, again, if we're looking at the broader context of Jeremiah, why are we clinging to certain passages and neglecting others? So these are questions to be asked and questions of relationship. How does this verse, and as you saw, this, how does this verse fit within the immediate context of the verses just before and after? How does it fit in the context of the book as a whole? We could even go broader, how does it fit in the context of Scripture as a whole and God's plan of redemption, what he was doing with his people, okay? So any thoughts on this question of relationship? Like I said, we're not going to try to answer all these questions. We would be spending uh, all day trying to study and look at these, but these are meant to spur us to, when we come to a text, thinking, our wheels spinning, asking questions like this that then drives us to study and look for the answers, Okay? Prophetic is like a prophecy God's predicted that something's going to happen in the future. Yeah. So these are these are definitely prophetic words as God's saying. Look, you're in captivity, but I'm prophesying. That's not going to be the end of this people that I've called out, my, my promised people. Okay? The next set of questions are questions of intention. These questions probe authorial intent, intention. So we talked about this, that what did the author the human author, intend to communicate. If, if our understanding of the text is completely outside of what the author intended to communicate, then there's probably just about 100% chance that's not what the text means, right? They're communicating with intent, um, and so God is inspiring them to, to write those words. So what is their intention? Um, the book says, Questions of intention, therefore probe into the nuanced features of the text, and ponder why something is said the way it is said. Okay? So once again, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. 11 here's some, some uh, questions of intention. Why did Jeremiah write this letter to Nebuchadnezzar or the captives in regard to the duration of captivity? Okay? Why is there given 70 years? Was it meant to provide hope for the captives or to instruct the king of Babylon regarding his treatment of those captives? So good questions to think through. Um, through this letter, was Jeremiah simply communicating the fulfillment of the vision he received in chapter 24? The vision of the good and, and bad figs. Was this a message of hope to some and the message of warning to others? So again, this drives us to look at the context of Jeremiah. Is the promise in verse 11 universal in scope? Or does it apply only to a select and historical group? So now we're getting into questions uh, that relate to our application of this verse, right? Um, we've talked on observation and, and some questions of interpretation, but that's definitely a question of how does this apply to us today? Is this a universal, well, God's got a future and a hope for you, and you can claim that verse directly. Um, and so then they have some follow-up questions with that. Um, so, yes, um, where did I leave off? Oh, the last one. Is the promise on verse 11 a universal in scope, or does it apply only to a selected historical group? Did Jeremiah intend it as an unqualified promise or is it contingent upon select circumstances and recipients to what extent is the new covenant a fulfillment of this promise so these are questions of application to ask is there application from Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? 11 absolutely all scriptures given by inspiration is profitable for doctrine reproof, correction and instruction of righteousness so all of scripture has application and meaning to us but we have to understand the context so we're applying it rightly Right? So that's why we start with observation and interpretation before we move to application. So we're asking these questions. Is this just a universal blanket statement for anybody and everybody, whether you're in Christ or not? What, what, are, what is the application of this? Okay. So these are some examples of questions of intention. Uh, any thoughts or questions about that group of questions? Alright, the, the last one are questions of implication. These questions... Explore the implications and ramifications of interpretation. That's a lot of shuns there. But yeah, we're trying to... What, what, if this text means this, then what are the ramifications of that, right? What does that imply? Because okay? if, if a lot of times when you come to a certain passage, well, if I interpret it this way, here's what that could mean. Here's the consequences of that. If I interpret it this way, here's the consequences. So here's some questions of implication. And they say uh, questions of content often form a basis for questions of relationship and intention and questions of implication most naturally follow questions of relationship and intention. Okay? So here's some examples from Jeremiah 29, 11 again. If verse 11 is historically and thematically particular, refer, referring to the captives taken in 597 B.C., then can it or should it be received as a universal unqualified promise of good fortune to all? Okay, so as we understand, uh, you know, the the context as we're observing and as we're interpreting, well, this is a promise directly to those captive Israelites, well, here's a question of implication. Well, then if that's the case, can or should it be received as a universal unqualified promise of good to all? Okay, of course, the answer we would know is no, right, because this is given directly. Is there application? Yes, but is it just a blanket universal statement? No. Um. The second question, is the fulfillment of verse 11 contingent upon a new covenant relationship as implied in verses 12 through 14? So, these are questions uh, of implication. Yeah, Joseph. Yeah. That's if my people pray. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, is there application to a verse like that? Yeah, that's a gr- great example of one that's almost given as a blanket statement and and we don't we don't look at the context of that. Absolutely, that's a good example. So, yeah, this is this is an example of that that it's not just meant to be Now again, Can we cling, and this would be from looking at the relationship of Scripture, can we cling to the promise that if we're in Christ, if we've repented of our sin and put our faith in Christ, that no matter what happens on earth, we have a future and hope eternally? Absolutely. I mean, is this verse necessarily saying that? I I don't necessarily think so, but we can take comfort in knowing the full of the gospel and understanding, yes, we do have a future and hope, but that's not a future of, our promise of future blessings here in this life that oh you graduated and so you're going to be successful in your job and you're going to make money and you're going to do that right so we have to be very careful as we go about that so uh the next couple examples that the promise of good fortune can be appropriated by believers today so again these are questions of implication so it's kind of a if this is true then you know what what are the implications of that so if you come to the interpretation that good fortune can be appropriated by believers today, even by way of general principle, then does the warning of disaster in verses 15 to 20 apply as well? So if we're quick to cling to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven 11 as direct uh, promise to us, well then do the verses 15 through 20 apply too of famine and sword and pestilence? So, so these are good questions to be thinking through. Uh, are there modern-day equivalents to the good figs in Jeremiah 24, 4-7, 29, 10-14 in the bad figs? And they give example passages in the book of Jeremiah. In what way does this affect our theology of God and our expectation of universal and unqualified blessing? Yes, Joseph. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, God is God is sovereign, and so there are no. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think we. Yeah. I think there's got to be a balance. We're not just. And I'm not saying that you're suggesting this at all, We're not, but, but a lot of people do today. Like there, There's a very famous pastor that has pretty much said this, that we can't just say, well, the Old Testament's done, so there's no benefit, there's no application at all. Just folks on the New Testament. There, I think there's benefit to the Old Testament. There's, there's application we can take from some of the principles, but it's not going to be just, the, oh, this, is, uh, this promise to Israel is going to be experienced by me, if that makes sense. It's not as direct. There's still application, um, but we've got to get, as we ask these questions and understand what, what the author was intending to say, what God was doing, you know, understand the context, then we can draw out, a, a, you know, a more fitting application to us today, if that makes sense. Yeah, yep. so, no, have... Right. So, probably... Yes. Today, right. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Good thought. Did you have something, Ryan? Gotcha, yeah, that may be your reference in Revelation, yeah. Right. But we've got to, at the end of the day, it's about not just jumping the gun, reading a verse. Oh, that must be to me. We're we're doing the work, and that's that's why I know this seems laborious. But working through these questions is hopefully getting us to think, wow, I've never thought of asking questions like this. I've never thought of coming to the, you know, and that as we talked about at the beginning this is what should drive us to bible study is i hope some of these questions i know for me and and, and i know we're leaving them unanswered but that's kind of in with intention to say i want to go study jeremiah or i want to go study this passage and think through some of these questions and not you know it takes work to understand god's word right we would expect nothing different of a word that's given to us by an infinite god that we're not just going to of course there's benefit we talked about how In the beginning, that God's Word is like that um, water that is really close at the surface, but it's deep. The deeper you get, you'll find there's no bottom to it. So it's accessible. We can read it and take benefit, but the more work we do, the deeper we dig, the more blessing and more benefit. And so this is what these questions are hopefully driving us to study more and for God's Word to come alive to us, okay? So um, next I have ten suggestions for asking the right questions of the text. So, I'm going to go through these really quickly. I think they're in your notes as well. Um, but they just give you 10 suggestions for asking the right questions of the text. First of all, observation should be a springboard for interpretive questions. So, we want to make sure we're not just jumping straight to trying to interpret or apply. We're going to try to ask questions of observation first. Okay? So, and as we're observing the text, we're going to be on the lookout for. Questions of interpretation. As we're looking and we're going to ask those, well, what does this mean or what, what is this trying to communicate, okay? When asking interpretive questions, don't limit yourself to general questions of content. Don't just focus on the content, but ask questions concerning the meaning, okay? Seek questions deeper than just who, why, where, what, and how. So these are good questions to ask as we come to a text, but um, more elaborate questions are preferred. These are a good starting point, but questions should consist of more complex and compound sentences over time, and that's what we see in those examples we've looked at as, and again, this comes over time, so don't be overwhelmed by this. As we talked about, I, lo- I like this study because it can benefit someone who's new to studying scripture, and it can be a benefit to those who've been studying it for a while, and so don't get overwhelmed if it's like, well, this feels, you know, some of these questions that are asked, I don't feel like I, I would ever come up with those questions, well, you may not right now, so start with some of those more basic: who, what, where, when, why. Understand the basics, and as you grow in your Bible study, you're going to get a little deeper. Okay, so don't be don't be intimidated by that. Um, ask both broad questions of con, of intent and purpose, and narrow questions pertaining to word meaning, etc. So, again, broad questions of the text of of. Um, you know, where it fits in the whole narrative of Scripture, but also more specific, more narrow, of like what what, is this for, what does this word mean in Greek or Hebrew, okay? Speculate regarding possible answers to your interpretive questions. So this was interesting in the examples that he gave. He says, develop leading questions that give possible answers within the question. So you probably noticed that with Jeremiah 29, 11, that he was asking questions that were leading. What is What are the possible outcomes? So he said, like, who was this written to? Was it written to the captives? Or to Nebuchadnezzar. So it's giving you possible answers within the question. Um, And, of course, this comes over time, too. As you understand Scripture more, you're going to be able to ask more of those leading questions, okay? Allow your knowledge of biblical and theological issues to influence your questions. So, again, as you grow in your understanding of Scripture, allow that to improve the questions that you ask, okay? Four more, and I know they're small on the screen. Um, but they're there in your notes. The question-asking process begins with observation but may continue throughout the process of interpretation and into application. So we're starting by trying to observe the text, but as we start to answer questions and understand what it says, that may lead to more questions along the way that we need to ask, more questions relating to interpretation or application. Okay. Um, Let me go back. I skipped ahead. I've got those four some questions relate more to application than to interpretation. Seek to determine whether your questions fit more under observation, interpretation, and application. Try not to move too quickly to the application questions. So we want to try to categorize our questions because when we read, and this is what a lot of people do, we read 2911, what do we do? Jump straight to the application. Oh, that, God's got a future and a hope for me. Well, we haven't done the work of The context, asking those questions, we've looked at, okay, now what does this mean? Okay, now how does it apply? So don't get too, too, don't put the cart before the horse, essentially, okay? Um, I think we left off on nine, right? Do not be asking questions simply for the sake of asking questions. Quality is better than quantity. So don't think as you come to a passage, like, I've got to come up with 20 questions for this one verse, it's more about the quality than the quantity of questions, okay? So ask good quality questions of the text. And then the last one, do not feel compelled to answer interpretive questions prematurely. So we're going to ask those questions of observation first before we seek to answer those interpretive questions before we really adequately observe the text. Joseph. Mm-hmm. right good deal yep good, good deal all righty so I think yeah this is the last slide I have so um, I, I'm not going to walk through all of these I think we'll walk through a few few of these questions just to get an idea but I included that in your notes because I, I'd encourage you um, They give us two example passages, James 1, 1 through 8, and 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. And what you see here is a list of questions um, that really just, they're meant to stir your mind to thinking of how to ask those questions of other passages as you're studying the Bible, just getting your gears spinning. Um, and so it's very, very uh, thorough in the questions they ask. Again, don't be overwhelmed by that. This is just more to get our gear spinning to be thinking, oh, wow, I didn't even, I would have not have thought to ask that question, but that's a great question to ask. So, James 1, 1 through 8, and you can turn there. We'll walk through a couple of these examples, and then we're going to wrap up here in just a couple minutes. And like I said, I encourage you look at these more in depth and, and be thinking through um, just how some of these questions are asked. So, James chapter 1. And I'm not going to read the passage, we'll, we'll, we'll go a verse at a time, um, and uh, again, you can read that and, and think through some of those questions, but the first verse there, uh, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, and so that's one verse, and so here's questions related to James and the historical setting. So this is, of course, the beginning of the book, so we're going to ask questions about who's this James, what's the historical setting, so who is James. And again, here's where you see the leading question, the possible answers. Is this James, the half-brother of Jesus? And it gives some references. Or is it the martyred brother of John that we see in Acts chapter 12? What evidence exists to support one choice or the other? Are there literary or thematic clues in the book that might suggest that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus? If this is James, the brother of John, then could the book have been written prior to the martyrdom uh, in Acts 12 too? So, um. These are good questions to ask. If, if if you answer, if if this is, if you come to the conclusion, well, this is James, the half-brother, or if you come to the conclusion that this is James, the brother of John, then you then the book has to be written before Acts 12, because that records his martyrdom. So if as you study the history of James, you realize, well, it wasn't written then, then that rules out that answer, right? So th- these are good questions to be asking um, as you're observing and interpreting the text. If this is James, the half-brother Jesus, then... Uh, when was this book written? Before or after the Jerusalem Council? And what difference would it make whether the book was written before or after the Jerusalem Council? Okay. Questions related to recipients. Okay. To whom is James writing? Is brothers, in this context, referring to just men or to men and to women? Is the author writing to Christians, brothers in the faith? Is he writing to Jews, ethnic brothers, or Jewish Christians? Would the distinct address to the Twelve Tribes in the Dispersion suggest any of the above-stated choices, perhaps disqualifying Gentile believers? Is Twelve Tribes in the Dispersion a metaphorical title? If so, what is the referent? What impact might the questions regarding the identity of the recipients have on the purpose and message of the book as a whole? So determining how, you know, if this is just for Jewish believers or just for Jewish people, or how does that change um, the purpose and message of the book? Are there other clues to the identity of the recipients in the book itself? So as we study the whole book, are there clues? If the reference to the twelve tribes is in some manner related to the church, then does this imply some form of replacement theology? So these are questions to be thinking through. Um, Let's look at very quickly with regard to James describing himself as a slave of God. So this is actually getting to the words of the text. Um, With regard to James describing himself as a slave, in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, a bondservant, Uh, in the NKJV, and the NASB, and a servant in the ESV and NIV. So this is where we talked about comparing translations. What is the Greek word behind these translations, and how is the word used elsewhere in the New Testament? Does the word carry a different connotation in the New Testament usage beyond the standard usage in first century Greco-Roman culture? Based on the lexical evidence, what English gloss best represents the Greek term for slave, doulos? Does the English language have a precise equivalent to the Greek doulos? Um in the English language what's the difference between a slave a bondservant and a servant and what term best reflects this so this is trying to understand what's the historical context and how can we accurately translate it give it a similar meaning to today's uh, our culture today why did he refer to himself as a doulos was this a title reserved for the apostolic community or is this term meant to describe all believers is James seeking a lead to example do the teachings within the book of James relate to or describe practical ways in which one may be a doulos What are the practical implications of being a doulos? Is this an equivalent to discipleship in the Gospels or to taking up one's cross in the teachings of Jesus? Does this imply that I too am a doulos? So again, I know that's very laborious and I'm going to stop there but I want to give you a sampling of those. But just good things to be thinking through and not that as you come to a text, like I said, one of the suggestions was don't just come up with a bunch of questions, it's more about quality. So don't feel like, well, he had eight questions for this one verse, so I've got to come up with eight questions. Maybe you only ask a couple, but you study and, and come to the, the conclusion of, of the answer to those, okay? So I close. I think I do have one more slide. Yes. Um, I, click, I put this, I think, in the notes as well, and it might have been before the example questions. But I think this is a great way to sum it up. For some, the concept of interpretive questions may seem rather laborious, And for others, it may seem an unnecessary sideshow to interpretation. Never allow the challenge of asking the right questions of the text to overshadow the goal of inductive Bible study, which is an informed and engaging encounter with the living Word of God. So don't be overwhelmed with what we looked at today. This is meant to get our gears spinning and just to see, man, there's so much we can ask of the text. Start, Start small. Start where you're at. Start by just asking basic questions that you have the ability to look for and as you grow in your ability to study scripture again the goal as he says is engaging and encountering the living word of god so don't let this push you away from that being like well i'm never going to answer all those questions so why bother no ask what you're able to and grow in that just like that picture of the water If, if all you can do is get an inch below the surface start there okay and as you under build your understanding of the word go a little deeper go two inches deep go three inches go you know and that's that's a lifelong process as we grow in our understanding of Scripture. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed.